Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Anne from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him from for she took for him a basket and made made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put a child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw a basket among three reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to her, to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse a child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called to the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. doing that wonderful reading to us. Um, happy Mother's Day. I hope you're enjoying your chocolates. I have to wait a little bit longer to eat mine. It's a bit disappointing. Did you get one, Amanda? Did you get a chocolate? Oh, good. I was looking at you and thinking, oh, I hope she didn't miss out. Um, I really love coming and speaking on Mother's Day because I feel really passionate about motherhood and about women in general. But today is actually a really special Mother's Day for me because it's the first time that I get to preach to my own mum who's here. And she is, I'll cry if I talk about her too much, um, because she is very, very special indeed. Um, but today we're going to be looking at a mother. We're going to be looking at Jochebed, Moses' mum. And we're going to be looking at motherhood straight in the eye. And for some of you, your brains may be kind of switching off a bit because I think the word motherhood can conjure up all sorts of different emotions. Some of you might feel right in the trenches of it. For some of you, it might be a bit of a painful thing. For some of you, you really don't care less. And quite a lot of you here are male, and so it might feel a little bit irrelevant. But trust me, this message is going to be for all of you. This is no child-rearing message. I don't have any weaning tips for you, I'm sorry. Just read the books, Google it. Um, Instead, we're going to be looking at what motherhood has to teach us about God. We're going to be focusing on the often overlooked maternal love of God, which the Bible so often leans on, particularly in the Old Testament, to explain the depth of God's devotion to us. Now, just before you panic, I'm not going to be suggesting that God is a woman. And I'm not going to be entering into the recent Church of England debate about what pronouns to use when you discuss God. No, 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 no. But I am arguing that the divine fatherhood is so precious and so deep and so perfect in love 
that scriptures often turn to motherhood to help us understand it. Male and female, we're both created in God's image and we're both needed to display that image. And as we're going to unpack today, we cannot properly understand the supernatural love that God has for us without the presence of motherhood in the world. But to do this, we're going to need to explore some of the scriptures which refer to biological mothering, particularly birth and breastfeeding. And I want to be really clear right from the start that there are many different forms of motherhood. They might be biological or adoptive, spiritual stepmothers, and they are all very, very worthy, wonderful outworkings of motherhood. I don't want in any way today to pedestal biological mothering over any other motherhood. And I'm not arguing today that the love of a mother is greater or better than that of a father. Howard is an incredible dad, and I'm not saying that just because I'm up here. He loves our children so deeply. His love is not lesser than my love. But I am proposing that to understand the nature of God's love, we need to pay attention to the messages that he's written into the biology of women and how his scripture calls us to take notice of them. So I understand some aspects of this might be a bit tricky for you, especially on a Mother's Day, but I'm going to try and take you through it gently. And I think you're going to find in it an even greater, more comforting hope and love than you've known before. So, Jochebed. I want to start by telling you a story about me and my mum, actually. So, when I was younger, we went to... She's looking worried. When we were younger, we went to the cinema. I went to see quite an old film now called Seven Pounds. And um, the premise of the film is that the main character, played by Will Smith, was going to die. And he was looking for worthy recipients for his organs. And so, in this film, he falls in love with a woman who needs a heart. And through very complicated, very reality-stretching series of events, he gives this woman her heart. And I remember as we came out of the cinema, my mum spun round to me, I don't know if you remember this, and she said to me, I'd do that, I'd give you my heart if you needed it. And I remember in that moment being quite scared by how, like, certainly she said that. And um, I'm sorry, mum, I definitely did doubt your, um, your sanity for a slight moment there. <laughs> but I have to say, as a mum now, when I think about it, I totally know where she's coming from. If my child needed a heart to stay alive, and it was possible they could have mine, there really wouldn't be a conversation. And that's the memory that I think of when I think about the story of Jochebed and how she loved Moses, and how that's a picture of how God loves us, and how that is a picture of how we are meant to love each other as the church. So to give you a bit of context to this passage, The Israelites have been in Israel for a while, and they've grown massively in numbers. And there's a new pharaoh now, and he's scared about the power that these Israelites have in their numbers. And he's subjected them to ruthless slavery. And he's tried to reduce their numbers by failing to get the Hebrew midwives to kill the baby boys that are born. So now he sets out this new new law, this new law that all the Hebrew baby boys that are born have to be cast into the River Nile. Now, we're going to discover, as we look through this now, that Jochebed shows us that motherhood is no weak, pastel-pink Mother's Day card. Neither is it a love that traps, entangles, or wastes your potential, as Hollywood films may suggest, or your peers. In fact, when I first wrote this talk, I was going to call it, I am mother, hear me roar, because this is a love that roars and endures. 
So let's look at this narrative together. We're going to start, my first point, and don't panic, it is by far my longest point, all the others are a lot shorter, is a divine birth story, Exodus 2, 1 to 2. So when does a rescue plan begin? Well, in Exodus 2, Israel's rescue from this oppressive slavery begins with a birth. It begins with the birth of Moses. Now, when we tell our epic stories, we don't really tend to talk about the birth that much. But the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, has a slightly different approach. I think God likes a birth story. In fact, maybe it's that birth has a story to tell us. In Isaiah 42:12, God uses the imagery of birth to explain how he will rescue the Jews that were in exile in Babylon. He says, For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. Now, whilst those Jewish exiles may have felt like God's delay meant that he'd forgotten them, actually like a pregnant woman, his passion for them was intensifying until the perfect moment to release them into their new life. It would be crazy if a newborn baby doubted their mother's love because it took nine months for them to be born, right? God's love is patient and deliberate. In the same way that he's written these unconscious rhythms into a woman's body so it knows just when the perfect time to trigger those first contractions of labor, God holds all of history sovereignly in his hands and his delay often speaks love, not abandonment. Now Moses' parents recognized there was something special in their son. So seeing that he was a fine child, They recognized that God had a special purpose for him. Whether they knew that he'd rescue his people, we we don't know. Probably not at that point. But it's clear this faith added fuel to their, and encouragement to their love to hide him at huge risk and danger to themselves. They had faith in God's timing, that he could bring hope even in such a time as that. Now, when God's time for rescue arrives, if we go back to Isaiah 42, It suggests it comes like a woman crying out in labor with gasping and panting. Birth hurts. Um, It's a bit of an understatement if you've been through it, especially before the invention of an epidural. Not sure how they did it then. Um, It hurts. We pant, we cry out, we tear, we bleed. And many women willingly get pregnant knowing that this will be the outcome. Why on earth do we do it? We do it for love. To love is to know pain, and the two are inseverable in this life. Just as I hurt when a child is unkind to mine, or I remember those that I've loved and I've lost, it is impossible to love another without knowing hurt when that person suffers or trying to do something to alleviate it. Love comes with a cost. One of my secondary school teachers told us once about her son, He um, developed um, a terrible drug addiction, and her and her husband would go out looking for him when he went missing on the hunt for drugs, and they made enormous sacrifices in order to secure the help that he needed. God knows all about such costly love. As our body bleeds and tears to bring about time-born, earthly life for our children, His son willingly bled and tore at the cross to bring eternal, spiritual, and eventually physically resurrected life for all who would put their faith in him, regardless of their DNA connection. God's crying and panting 
It wasn't out of his control like a pregnant woman. Instead, such is his perfect love that he chooses to know that cost. He chooses to know the cost of loving us and of our sin against his love so that we don't have to. Like a woman who pushes hard in labor, he sacrificed so that the life and well-being of his children wouldn't be jeopardized, even by our own doing. But pushing isn't all that's involved in labor. And I know a lot of women who have a little bit, or maybe a lot of embarrassment about their bodies, their postpartum bodies. You've kind of got the scars, the stretch marks, you've got maybe the hips don't quite go back. Um, if anything like me, you know, you don't really want to jump on a trampoline for a while until you've built up those muscles again. It's not pretty. But isn't it interesting how Jesus doesn't yearn for his pre-cross body? I wonder perhaps if we should contemplate more the message that is in those scars, the love and sacrifice and new life that they represent. When Jesus stood resurrected before the disciples, um, there with his holes and his scars and his hands, feet and side for all to see, they were a picture of the beauty of his love and of his glory. They were the evidence that um, convinced Thomas of his power over death. Now, when my children point to my scar, now, it, you don't have to trust me here. My scar is actually on my leg, which sounds weird, but it's a long story. I promise you it is actually birth-related. But whenever they point it out, I say to them, that reminds me that you came from me, that our bodies were once one, and my body gave you life. And that is a beautiful scar. But enduring... Costly love doesn't make sense without comprehending the depth of a mother's love. Now, you may have read those tabloid stories of women who give birth in the toilets, never even knowing that they were pregnant. And they grab our attention because, to be quite honest, they are quite incomprehensible. Like, I don't understand how that ever happens to you. Because from quite early on, it's quite hard not to know that you're pregnant. You don't have periods, you feel sick. If anything, I mean, like incessant migraines. And then you've got all the kind of prodding and the kicking of your ribs. It's not the most comfortable experience. See, to, some, to be pregnant is to some extent to know your child. And it's that example of knowingness that helps us appreciate the devotedness of God to us. Isaiah 49:15 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Can a woman forget a child that she has born and fed? Well, I know many women who've had a difficult start to motherhood. And for lots of different reasons, some of them have given their child up for adoption or have had an abortion, and I'm in no way endorsing nor judging either of those. But none of those women I know have ever forgotten that child. We have a family friend who's in her 80s now, had an abortion, she's got three grown children, she still talks about that baby. Because, you see, it's possible for a man to father a child and to never even know that he's done it. But it's exceedingly hard for a woman to do that. Because our parenting as women comes with an umbilical cord, and it's made of a lot more than just blood vessels. That is the picture that God chooses to draw our attention to when he's explaining the strength of his connection with his people. 
We're meant to assume that such a mother-child bond can never be forgotten, never be broken. And yet his love is so perfect, it's even stronger than that. Interestingly, the word that's often translated as mercy or compassion in relation to God's character, rachim, has the same root as the related word rachem, um, which means womb. So for example, in Exodus 34, 6, God describes himself as the Lord, the Lord, and most merciful rachim, and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, you might have heard before how I'd share this story of a um, persecuted believer who was lined up with lots of other Christians, and they were shot one by one. And remarkably, he survived. And sometime later, um, he was asked, what was going through your mind when you were in that moment? And he replied, Lord, son of the living God, have mercy on me. Lord, womb me. What a beautiful, provocative picture. God's love for us isn't just unbreakable. It wombs us. It provides everything that we need. It is the provision of all comfort and flourishing and protection for us as growing children and babies. But unlike our mothers, God loves us from an eternal perspective. He's loved us before our hearts started beating and will continue to after it stops and into our resurrected life. <coughs> unlike our biological and adoptive mothers, he loves us with an omnipotent love that doesn't have end or limitation and out of an infinite resource. You will never be too much or too little for him to cope with. You will never need more than he can offer and he cannot and will not ever forget you. I can kind of almost imagine Druckerbed holding that baby, that newborn, those newborn cries that are like a kind of bungee cord for your heart. And I can imagine her looking at him. And that was all it took for her to decide to hide him. Now, some people, actually interesting, only male commentators I've come across, have suggested that she hit him, him and Amran hit him, because they knew God had a special purpose for him. But in all honesty, it doesn't sit well with me. I think if I had a child, and I had an idea, but it was slim to none of working, but the alternative was certain death, I think I'd try it anyway. Instead, I think in God's kindness, he gave a message to them to reassure them, to give them faith and hope to cling to for their baby boy, the reassurance to give them peace and courage in a fearfully dangerous time. I like to think like, just like when we stand at the foot of the cross, when we look at Jesus, Moses didn't need to do anything to earn Jochebed's love. His pure existence and primitive need for her was enough. Our second point is a nurturing act of hope. Exodus 2, 3. Now, my daughter is, um, she's about 18 months-ish off secondary school. So, um, we've looked at a few schools to think about where she might go. We've um, sort of tried to get some wisdom about mobile phones and like how do we cope with the onslaught of hormones, which I fear are probably already there, but are definitely coming in greater measure soon. Um, but what am I doing when I'm doing that? What I'm doing is I'm dubbing her basket with vitamin and pitch. I am preparing her for the unpredictable, potentially dangerous waters that one day I will have to give her up to. Vitamin and pitch are waterproofing materials. They're still used today. And they would have sealed and strengthened that basket so that when it was placed in the river, no water would come in and endanger Moses. 
Jochebed was preparing protection for him when she wouldn't be available to help him anymore. She couldn't control exactly where the basket went or who went to the basket or anything like that, but she could keep it secure. She could keep it watertight. Now, most of us may hope to have our children with us far longer than Jochebed did, but let them go, we all have to do at some point. And the basket is an image of the nurturing discipleship that we need to show our children, of protection and comfort. We waterproof our children's baskets by teaching them scripture, by teaching them godly values, by teaching them life skills, teaching them how to budget, how to manage conflict, and what or who to live for. Every time we expose an idol or take a cultural message captive and look at what the lies and truths underpin it, we're dubbing on more vitamin and pitch. Like God represented as the mother bear in Hosea 13:8, who rips open and devours false gods, false teaching and those taken in by them, as if there were lions and wild beasts threatening to consume her cubs. False idols are far more dangerous than we give them credit, and God's love is ferocious to eradicate them. Now, however ragged I might look after my kids have been sick and I've been up all night, I'm not suggesting that we mothers are bears. But I do think we roar in protection of our children. Motherhood is not just about cuddles. It's strong and it's wise and it's courageous. And like the image of a mother bear, motherhood is the powerful struggle to preserve the next generation. It's the battle for holiness that God has been battling ever since we first ate the the forbidden fruit. It speaks of love and protection. And I think when we think of that image, it helps us see that motherhood shows us that love can look strong. It can even look scary and shocking. It can be a bear tearing apart a lion. It can be a man on a cross allowing nails to be driven into his hands and his feet. Our next point is the releasing act of faith, Exodus 2, 3 to 4. Now, I once went um, whitewater rafting, actually, down the River Nile. I didn't actually enjoy it that much. I spent the whole time being terrified of being eaten by a crocodile after somebody told me there'd been a sighting recently. Um, It was probably not even true. They were just winding me up. But, um, But in the Bible, actually, rivers are often a symbol of hope rather than fear. So God shows Ezekiel a wonderful vision of a river in Ezekiel 47, 1 to 12. And this river flows as a trickle, um, then an ever-increasing river until it goes into the sea and it turns the sea from salty to fresh water. And it flows from the altar of God. um, And it brings continually fruitful trees that have leaves for healing. It's perhaps the same river of the water of life that's in Revelation 22, which flows from the throne of God and the Lamb um, and waters trees which bring healing to the nation. And this river is a picture of the Holy Spirit and how it brings us refreshment and life from the Father and the Son. And the River Nile in this narrative will be a river of life for the Israelites too, as God sovereignly will use it to connect Moses and Pharaoh's daughters so that Moses is perfectly placed um, to go forward and, and rescue them in the future. As we release our children into the world, as Jochebed puts Moses into the river, it's right that we should pray for their protection and flourishing. But we needn't do so with fear, 
because we don't abandon them to the untamable winds and waves. We pass them on to the Almighty, to whom the winds and waves obey. God is always at work, even when we can't see what he's doing. Just as he was at work in this narrative to begin this rescue plan for his people. Our challenge is not to battle against the tide, but to ensure that we and our children are in the flow of the river of life, moving in the direction the Holy Spirit is guiding us because his river flows from the altar and the throne of God towards hope and life. Glenn Scrivener writes in his book, The Air We Breathe, which is very good, it's actually for sale in a coffee shop, says, whilst the arc of progress may be long and painfully U-shaped, diving to great depths of suffering before rising, as believers we live a life that is immovably pulsating towards hope. Hope, hope such as a certain rescue, Exodus 2, 5 to 8. Now, rescue comes from Moses through community, comes through the Hebrew wives, his mum, his father, his sister, his adoptive mother, and Pharaoh's daughter. They all play that part. He was unharmed by the Hebrew midwives who refused to kill him when he was born. He's birthed and nursed by his mother. He's guarded by his sister, and then he's raised by his adoptive mother, Pharaoh's daughter. Now, on my wedding day, um, my dad gave him father of the bride's speech, and he thanked many, many, many people, because as the saying goes, which he quoted, it takes a village to raise a child, and love finds its fullness in community. Our God is a trying God, and it love, he lives in communal love. We've got the combined love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who've eternally loved each other and continually loved us since we were first created. And it's a perfect, selfless love because it comes from a place of total, full, and perfect love for each other. And as we learn to love as families, there will inevitably be disagreement and tension because community in any form is jolly hard work. But we're called to do it because, in part, this is how we are changed. It's how our love is refined and purified. And community, specifically family, is the metaphor that's used to describe God's current rescue plan, the church. So in Isaiah 66, 7 to 14, God predicts the sudden growth and development of the church within the nations. And in doing so, he uses the metaphor of a mother, this time not focusing on his own love, but on the love of his people, the church they would bring. It says, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All of you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All of you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees. 
As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. And he shall show his indignation against his enemies. This image is of the church as a mother. And it's fitting how Ephesians 5 compares the husband-wife relationship to Christ and the church. But this isn't just an extension of a theological concept. It's telling us about how and what church should be like, the love of the church should be like. Nursed, breastfed, carried on her hip, bounced on her knees. These are all pictures of nourishment, of comfort, of delight, of fun. What does Isaiah tell us is the result of a church that models a motherhood approach to its care of its flock? You shall see... Your heart shall rejoice, your bones shall flourish like the grass. When we bring a nurturing approach to discipleship, we avoid legalistic fault-finding. We major on encouragement and correct with love and humility. The church doesn't just grow in numbers, it grows in joy and wholeness. Our bones, the essential structure that the church leans on, will be like grass. What is grass? Grass isn't just numerous, It's resilient, right? We walk on the grass, we trample it, we allow our cattle to graze on it, we mow it down. In this country, at least, it gets absolutely drenched half of the year and then parched and burnt alive the rest of the year. But it keeps growing, it keeps growing. How do we be resilient believers like grass? How do we be a resilient church like grass? How do we keep going when we're trampled on, when we're eaten, when we're cut cut down? We can because we know We're not just loved with a father's love. We're loved with a mother's love. And hopefully, not just by our Father God in heaven, but also by each other, our church family. These verses are really, really important because being a spiritual mother can sometimes be added on to these talks, a bit in a tokenistic way, maybe a bit like a consolation prize. But actually, nothing could be further from the truth. When we are church to each other, when we disciple young believers, when we pastorally care for each other, when we biblically teach those we are mentoring, we are mothering. This mothering is layering on the bitumen of pit and pitch that prepares and strengthens the church to grow and persevere in our great commission, to share the gospel and to hold on to it for ourselves. As the church mothers, it brings a life, flourishing joy, and it reveals the hand of the Lord to his servants. So my final point, the great goodbye, Exodus 2, 9 to 10, as we sort of finish up, it's worth pointing out that Jacob probably didn't get to see Moses grow to adulthood. Um, She didn't get to see all that he did um, in his life to come. Like any parent, at some point, she had to say goodbye. And it's the goodbye, if I'm honest, that makes me most nervous about motherhood. Um, When I kind of listen to my own mum sometimes talk about things she's anxious about, I worry about what will happen when I'm not there anymore to support them. I may roar like a mother, and I may bounce them on my knees, but one day my roar will quieten, and my knees will be too sore for bouncing. And perhaps over time, our roles will slowly reverse, and I'm going to need their help. Actually, to be honest, I already need their help to keep up with technology, to be quite honest. But I'm going to need it even more. And then maybe one day, I'm even going to need their help just to get in and out of the bath. And then one day, if Christ hasn't already come, 
I'm going to run out of breath. And my children are going to bury me. And then one day, they're going to have a really bad day, and they're going to think, I wish my mum was here. But even though that causes me a very deep sadness, it is not a reason to despair, because God, in his perfect love, never weakens nor diminishes. His roar never stops deafening those who would threaten his children. His breath knows no limits. His strength is everlasting. He needs nothing from us that he can give to us unsparingly. His love and presence exceeds even that of a nursing mother. He will always be available to us. With him, we and our children are never alone, and we are always loved. That's the story of motherhood. Whether you're biological, spiritual, adoptive, a grandmother, we roar and we endure. So hear us and see us and steward this motherhood call with great care and attention. Because to behold a mother is to behold a very powerful image of the love of God. And that's what I'm celebrating today. So if the, um, the band wants to come up, I'm going to pray in a moment. Um, but before I do, I'm just going to say that while the band are playing, we're going to have um, some people available to be prayed with, um, uh, or to pray with you, rather, in this lovely prayer area over here. And I'd really encourage you to come forward if you have any prayer needs. But I specifically would love for you to come for prayer if you feel like you don't really know this unbreakable love. Because you can know it. You can know it today. I also feel like there's some of us here who desperately need to crawl back into the womb of God again today. And we would love to pray with you about that. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you that you are good. That you are so, so good. Father, I thank you that you love us with a love so, so deep that it's not just unbreakable, that it wounds us. And without being cringy, Lord, I pray that as we worship now, we would experience something of that, of being wombed by your love, of knowing the fullness and the flourishing the unbreakable strength of that love. Thank you, Father. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.